do you consider yourself a space lawyer? Yes, absolutely, I do. Uh, and when I get asked by people, oh, what do you do? If I want the conversation with that person to continue, generally I will say I'm a space lawyer or I'm a space law professor in answer to that question. Um, <laughs> if I don't want that to continue, sometimes I will give a slightly less specific answer. host, Nathan Johnson, and in each episode, I interview professionals in space law and policy to try and find out exactly what that means. First, a disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of any of my past, present, or future employers or clients. Today, I am joined by a colleague of mine, Dr. Andrea Harrington. Hi, my name is Andrea Harrington, and I am an associate professor at Air Command and Staff College at Air University where I teach in the Schriever Scholars Space Immersion Program. And I need to give the same disclaimer that Nathan just gave, saying that my views here expressed are my own and are not the views of Air University or the US Air Force. You know, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I've never been sure whether my disclaimer is appropriate. Nobody's questioned it. And so I think you've just helped support that I have chosen the right words to use in that disclaimer. I'm required to give a disclaimer, so. Good, good. All right, so then, first question, do you consider yourself a space lawyer? Yes, absolutely, I do. And when I get asked by people, oh, what do you do? If I want the conversation with that person to continue, generally I will say I'm a space lawyer or I'm a space law professor in answer to that question. Um, <laughs> If I don't want that to continue, sometimes I will give a slightly less specific answer, but I definitely do consider myself to be a space lawyer. I am an attorney. I'm admitted to the bar and active in the state of Massachusetts. I also have an LLM and a doctorate from the McGill University Institute of Air and Space Law. I have focused myself very much into that field. And it's also nice to be a space lawyer when you get people trying to ask you questions about, you know, slip and falls or divorces, and you get to say, no, no, that's not my area of the law. I will stick with air and space law. If you have an aviation accident or a space launch problem, please feel free to reach out to me. But I can't help you with your slip and fall. I, it sounds like you have the same party strategy that I do as well. So yeah, I definitely will use space law to deflect other legal questions that I have no interest in answering. But you said that when you do want a conversation to continue, you do say specifically that you are a space lawyer. So do you find that people are really interested in that hook? Yes, 
people are either very interested and want to know more for the folks who are space enthusiasts, or sometimes, and I, I try to weed out the folks who I expect are going to answer this way, what is space law? Is that about aliens? <laughs> that comes up more often than you might think. I have occasionally gotten, what do you mean space law? Is, is that a part of real estate law? As if they're talking about, you know, the space a building occupies or that sort of thing. But yes, I do find that people usually want to understand what that means because they haven't heard a lot about space law and they don't understand how important space really is to day-to-day -day life on planet Earth these days. People don't realize how dependent we are on GPS. Of course, they know, okay, when I've got my iPhone or my Android and I want to look at maps or figure out how to get somewhere or have an app you know, give me the closest store for a particular brand in the area that I'm in. Yes, that uses GPS, but that is probably the least impactful use of GPS as far as the functioning of our society is concerned. The, the, the precision timing is arguably more important than the navigation piece that keeps our entire financial system functioning. It keeps our electrical grids functioning. So that's just one piece there. But obviously, satellite telecommunications are a very important factor. Weather prediction is, of course, very important. And, and our enhanced weather prediction capabilities using space-based assets have made an incredible difference. You know, telemedicine and all of the things that can be done for folks in rural areas using space are really important. And then we have the things that people tend to think of when they think of space, which are space launch which is very important also as we are continuing to develop moving forward as the commercial industry is becoming more and more involved with space. And then we see the cutting edge technologies that are coming forward like space-based resource utilization or perhaps space-based solar power, which could have substantial impacts on the economy on earth. So I think people are interested to hear about the ways in which space is actually really important for people on Earth. And of course, anything that's important for people on Earth has a field of law that's essential to keep that functioning. So and we, we've had a lot of people mention the critical infrastructure components that are supported by operations in space and so therefore are affected by space law. But you've mentioned a lot of different activities beyond just that. So but you always talked about sort of the security of those operations. So when you think about space law, it seems like a very large component of it is the security of activities that take place in space. Is that accurate? Security is an important component of it, but I think saying just security is really a, an insufficient way to look at the most critical aspects of what's going on here. Certainly security is important and it's gonna to continue to become more important as we continue to develop further space assets, contracting is incredibly important. And the regulatory environment, the creation of that legal regulatory, legal and regulatory environment moving forward and establishment of what rules we're all going to have to follow going forward is incredibly important. Let's take a step back here and let's we we've talked about where space law is currently active right now and all the, the current activities that it impacts and stuff. But what was your perception of space law before you got started? I guess this is a roundabout way of saying, how did you first get interested in space law? So I have always been a space nerd. I'm, I'm a nerd and I own it. I love science fiction and I love the idea of humanity continuing to explore and utilize outer space 
for our own progress, for our own development as a species. And, you know, as a, as a kid, I watched Star Trek with my mom. She and I would watch the shuttle launches on the more realistic side of things. I found, you know, as time went on, things like the Apollo 13 incident to be incredibly inspiring for how we overcome adversity and deal with challenges. I a lawyer and I was practicing in an insurance company, drafting insurance contracts and endorsements. I enjoyed my job. I didn't mind going to work every day. But I thought to myself, you know, if I continue doing this for my entire career, I'm going to look back when I retire and wonder, what did I really accomplish other than having, you know, a stable job that got me through life and decided I had to think really hard about what I wanted my career path to look like. And I discovered space law exists and that it is growing and becoming more and more important. And I really thought, wow, this is a place where someone like me, whose skill set is in the legal world rather than in the scientific or technical world, can really get involved and have an impact on our future development. And so I decided to commit myself to that goal. And I really do think it's telling on, on the aside for people who look at it on its face and say, well, what we really need to get to space are the engineers, the scientists, and the technicians, not the lawyers, that the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space has two equal subcommittees. And those two subcommittees are scientific and technical on one side and legal on the other. And that for humanity to continue to develop those capabilities moving forward and reach our full potential, we do obviously need the scientists, engineers, and technicians, but we also need the lawyers and the policymakers. Yeah, part of me sort of imagines that lawyers are just a licensed form of storytellers on a certain level. That's not to to make every single lawyer uh, Shakespeare, but the idea that you have science and engineering on one side, right? Hard concepts and equations and hardware that you can build. And on the other side, it's like, well, how would you bring in a, uh, a sociologist on something? Well, maybe it, put them through law school and give them a law degree. And now that looks a little bit more substantial. But it is it is law and policy. I introduced this podcast by saying law and policy, and I find that a lot of the lawyers I talk to apply what they've learned into making policy, right? So you don't need a law degree to do policy, but it seems to overlap a significant amount for people. I definitely agree with that statement. In general, law is developed as a result of policy. In most legal fields, the policy is either well-established or obscure enough to the legal practitioner. And when you're talking about things like contracts, we don't get into the policy very deeply because those policy issues have been resolved for the most part in terms of the development of this legal regime over hundreds of years. But when we're talking about space, we're talking about a legal regime that is currently developing especially at the, at the domestic level. And when you have a developing new legal regime, tackling issues are so unique. You need policymakers who are going to understand what the policy implications are and also how to appropriately craft and formulate laws and regulations. So I think when you have something that's so cutting edge, you have a lot more overlap between policy and law than you necessarily do in some other legal fields. 
cyber is another area where I think there's quite a lot of overlap between policy and law for very similar reasons. It's interesting to hear your backstory. You talk about practicing in insurance. And if I recall correctly, you have written a paper on space law and insurance as practical regulation. Is that right? I am going to credit you with the understatement of the century. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on space insurance and a number of papers that have come from it and flowed from it uh, as well. So for a number of years, my research was really focused in the, the space insurance side of the world, largely because I was coming into space law with an understanding of the insurance industry. And I really thought that, okay, well, let me leverage this experience that I already have and this knowledge that I've already developed and apply it somewhere in space law that is developing and that's going to be incredibly important to the continued successful development of this industry. Okay, so more than just a paper then. (laughs) But that brings us back to a good point. So you were already a practicing attorney and you wanted to make that switch. So you sought out getting an LLM degree as your avenue to make that switch. That's correct. And I don't know if you've already said it or not, but you got that LLM at McGill University? Yes. At the Um, McGill University Institute of Air and Space Law, I did my LLM there, and then I went on to do the DCL, which is their academic doctorate program. Okay. And that brings up one other point. Do you remember how we first met each other? I believe the first time we met was in 2015 at the Space Generation Advisory Council's Fusion Forum in Colorado Springs. Is that is that correct, or did, had we met prior to that event? I think that we actually met during one of the Space Law Moot Court competitions. I think it was after you you've you competed in the Space Law Moot Court. Is that correct? I did competed, and then I started coaching for the McGill teams while I was doing my doctoral studies there and serving as a teaching fellow there. And then when I started teaching at the University of Mississippi School of Law, I was coaching their moot court teams. And now I'm coaching a moot court team (laughs) from Air Command and Staff College. So I have certainly made the rounds with the Manfred Lex International Space Law Moot Court competition. (laughs) <laughs> I think it was when you were I think it was when you were coaching the McGill team. I think is th- that is when we first saw each other. And then subsequently we recognized each other when we attended the Fusion Forum, the Space Generation Fusion Forum in Colorado Springs. That makes sense. But I also want to We say had our first substantial conversation substantial. I think non, at the Fusion Fusion Forum. Non-adversarial interaction at the Fusion Forum. But this also is a great plug for the Man for Lack Space Law Moot Court competition. Full disclosure, I am regional organizer for North America of the competition. But it is a international competition with regions throughout the world. And if there's no greater endorsement than having a regional organizer talking to a coach who has coached three different schools into the competition, uh, I hope that gets listeners interested in it. 
I personally really love the competition. I think, first of all, it's the best way to learn both space law and international law that you could possibly find. You learn a lot more doing the competition than you do sitting in a classroom and writing an exam or a paper at the end of the semester. But I also think that you learn really valuable life skills in the Manfred Lacks court competition. So I was already a professional. I was already an attorney by the time I competed in the Manfred Lacks. And I still think that I honed a lot of skills, not space law skills. I mean, I did hone those and international law skills. But in terms of how to think, how to organize myself, how to manage my time, how to find holes in my reasoning, it really improved that whole process. And I think any moot court will do that. But I think that the international law competitions are actually more rigorous than domestic law competitions. And fellow law professors around the country are probably sighing at my comments. But for most of those competitions, the, the competitors wind up drafting only one side of the argument. Their briefs are only for one side, unlike the memorials for the international law competitions, in which you actually have to write the arguments for both and get up and argue both. And it's not a closed universe competition unlike many of the domestic law competitions, meaning many of the domestic law competitions get a set of cases that they are allowed and required to use. Difference in terms of the amount of work that people will put into this competition. And so I highly advocate if you get a chance to participate, yes, it will be a ton of work, but it will be the most rewarding work that you can do. I only competed in the Space Law Moot Court when I was in law school, so I had no comparison or reference when other people talked about their competitions. I had no idea that other people got away with only having to write one side of the argument instead of both. So how are you involved now in the space law community? You are still in an academic capacity teaching, and you're still involved in the Space Law Moot Court competition? Yep. So here at Air Command and Staff College, I am teaching for, as I mentioned, the new Schriever Scholars Space Immersion Concentration. So I'm the law and policy person on faculty. You know, we've got operators and experts and other folks who also have policy background, but I'm, I'm the only lawyer on our faculty here for that aspect of our program. I'm also offering, you know, sort of my space law knowledge and teaching to other aspects of Air University as a guest lecturer in other courses and other parts of, of our program. Here, I'm running space law electives, including the moot court competition, which is running here as an elective, in addition to the, the core space curriculum. I am also editor-in-chief of the Journal of Space Law based out of the University of Mississippi, which is where I was teaching previously before I came over here. I'm an assistant editor on the Air and Space Lawyer, which is the Air and Space Law publication for the ABA Air and Space Law Forum. So that's the interest group for the American Bar Association. So the, the sub-interest group for that is the Air and Space Law Forum. I last summer was the associate chair of the Policy, Economics, and Law Department at the International Space University's Space Studies Program in the Netherlands. I am very active in terms of space law conferences and events. I try to go to as many of those every year as I can. I'm a member of the International Institute of Space Law because I love it, because I'm passionate about it. It's interesting, and it's what I want to do with my career. It's not just a job. It's who I am. And from a, from a career development standpoint, can you talk about the trajectory of 
you attending panels to you speaking on panels? Because, I mean, it seems like maybe at this point you actually get to speak on more panels than you just attend. Yeah. So since I have transitioned to teaching, I have mostly only gone to conferences where I am presenting. There are some exceptions to that. But some of that is a funding question, right? It's easier to justify getting funded to go to a conference when you are on a panel and you're representing your organization. There are a lot of great opportunities for students to speak and for young professionals to speak. So I would highly recommend if you think you're up to it, to anybody who might be listening out there who's trying to get involved, applying for those speaking opportunities. There's a young scholars group for the IISL. There's a, there's a panel for their international conference every year, the International Astronautical Congress. So the IASL has a symposia as part of the overall conference. So there are a lot of opportunities that you can get involved. Even if you are just going to attend, I think that the community is generally very welcoming. And I would highly recommend approaching panelists that you've heard that you want to talk to or ask questions of approach them afterwards. For the most part, everyone in this community is very friendly and wants to help develop the up and coming folks and wants to see the community as a whole succeed, which includes the younger generation of folks coming up or the people who are career switching to come over into space law. So, I mean, I think it's it's a great community to make that transition to. Yeah, and I remember when I was getting my LLM, I started speaking on panels. So I spoke in my fall semester and I spoke again in my spring semester. And I think even for JD students, if they are in any sort of journal or note writing class, if you've developed a a paper in one of your classes, there's a really good possibility that you could submit that or submit something based on that paper to speak at a conference. Absolutely. So from your perspective, now, having worked privately in insurance, seeing that insurance applies to the space domain, having gotten your LLM and your doctorate and teaching at multiple universities, and now teaching at a defense-related university, what is currently happening in space law? What other issues are, are out there right now? So one of the ones that has been talked about quite a lot is space resource utilization. That's been a hot topic since the end of 2015 when we got U.S. domestic legislation that authorizes the government to license private companies to extract and take ownership of extracted space resources. Luxembourg has passed a similar law. Ours is better drafted, in my opinion, um, and I have not had anything to do with the drafting of any of them, to to be very clear. But... This is a new hot topic that's being debated in the international law community in terms of, okay, how are we going to approach that? The technology is getting there. Is this definitely legal under the Outer Space Treaty? I agree with the preponderance of folks in the community that say, yes, it is legal. But it is one of the more interesting cutting-edge legal issues. In terms of stuff that's maybe a little bit less sexy, frequency allocation is always a problem. And as we are continuing to see more space activities develop, we have to be more concerned with frequency allocations. And that, of course, goes through the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, at the international level, and FCC at the domestic level. But it's something to be aware of. And it ties in as far as low Earth orbit is concerned with the proposals for very large constellations of small sats 
that are going to dramatically increase the number of satellites in orbit. So they're going to have to be using frequencies not interfering with each other. They're also going to have to be deorbited in accordance with debris mitigation guidelines or else we're going to have major space debris problems around them. So something else that's something else to, to keep your eyes on in terms of space law moving, moving forward, both at the domestic and international level, because domestically, those usages have to be licensed. Those launches have to be licensed, but so do so does the frequency use. Yeah, it sort of strikes me as I saw a, a cartoon or something where somebody talked about soon there will be so many satellites up in the sky, we won't be able to see the sun. And I'm like, no, there's actually a lot of physical space up there. But what there isn't as much space for is frequencies. So the sky would sooner fill up with frequencies than it would with the actual physical satellites. Yes, absolutely. And then like you mentioned, we currently, there is a international regime for for some of that, and it goes through the International Telecommunications Union. And that's usually one of the only standing international bodies that we can point to in space law in terms of saying like, there's somebody you have to get permission from. Otherwise, everything else you can just do without international permission. Right. Although I will point out that it is important for states to register their space objects on the UN register through UNUSA, even after they've registered them on their national registry. It's not permission. It's after the fact registration. But it is an involvement uh, at the international level of an international organization. But yes, the ITU definitely has to grant permission, at least if you want protection from harmful interference from other users, you need to get protection through the ITU, which the state does for you. You don't go as a private entity and then you work through your domestic body, which for us is the FCC. But that's a very good point. And I think people forget about the ITU when they're talking about space law a lot, even though it's really important. And in fact, geostationary orbital slots are allocated through the ITU as well. Let's, let's, take, uh, let's take another leap here. What, in your opinion, is the biggest misconception in the general public about space law? I mean, I think we touched on it. I think the biggest misconception is people think it doesn't matter to them, that it doesn't have an effect on their lives. And while certainly they're not going to be going to court for issues of space law, the continued functioning of our space industry is based on legal regime that's in place. And I don't think people understand that because people are so surprised often to know that space law even exists, right? That's a, that's a real thing. Are you talking about aliens? You know, implies that the general public is generally really unaware with regard to, to space and therefore also with regard to space law. Certainly everyone knows about NASA and knows about the great things that NASA is doing. But that's really the limit of what most people think about space. Maybe they think about the Sirius XM radio in their car being a satellite radio, or maybe they think if they have a satellite dish at home, oh yeah, I'm getting my entertainment from space. So I think that's a big problem. Yeah, and I, th I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but I, I've literally, after describing what I do after a presentation, I, I had somebody go, and there's somebody that pays you for that? Like how many how many jobs could there be in space law? And I was like, well, I would say with with absolute certainty, there are more jobs than you think. <laughs> they yeah. were just surprised that it was 
a paying field. And, and yeah, you, you point out all the things. Sat satellite communications have been around for 50 years. So, yeah, there's there's been people who have been covering that for, well, for a long time. And don't forget about export controls because they might not be a whole lot of fun, but there are definitely jobs dealing with export controls. Yes. Yes, and that was that was drilled into me by one of my early mentors, Mike Gold, who I think is known in our circles as the export control guy in space law. Absolutely. I will give a kapla to <laughs> Mike Gold. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, <laughs> a bit of Klingon in your podcast. You've got to have a little bit of Klingon every once in a while, right? <laughs> a, a little bit, yeah. Are there any misconceptions you think in the industry about space law? Is there anything that people who who are in the know about these activities are getting wrong? Yes, absolutely. And I have seen this really emphasized to me on the defense side. A lot of people think the Outer Space Treaty prohibits a lot of things that it simply does not. The most glaring problems there usually have to do with military uses. But in general, I think that people have this gut impression that the Outer Space Treaty is a very restrictive document. And I completely disagree with that assessment. I think the Outer Space Treaty is fundamentally an enabling document, that the spirit of the Outer Space Treaty is geared toward encouraging human exploration and use of outer space, and that the limitations that the Outer Space Treaty puts on that use and exploration are limited to what's necessary to ensure that we can do so in safe, cooperative, secure fashion moving forward, but that those restrictions are not onerous, are not prohibitive to business activities or bad for commercial industry, etc. So instead of a treaty that limits what you can do, it's actually limiting, limiting what you can't do. That's one way to put it. I mean, it does. It does positive. It does positively list things that you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to put weapons of mass destruction in space. Ah, uh, does it say that, Nathan? What does it say exactly? Let me let me look up my own website here. Library.astroesquire.com/ost. I'm going to tell you, you can't put weapons of mass destruction on orbit. That's true. On orbit. Okay. You yeah. also can't You also can't put weapons of mass destruction in or on celestial bodies. Okay. So you're but saying that there's an in-between space? There's a, there's a void. It, it's not necessarily in-between. I guess it's sort of in-between. That you could send a weapon of mass destruction into deep space. I don't know why you would want to, but that wouldn't be expressly prohibited by the treaty. And if we're going to talk Lotus Principle, if it's not expressly prohibited, it's permitted. Almost anything in space can be dual use. It can be a weapon or it cannot be a weapon, depending on how you use it. Anything for on-orbit satellite servicing is going to fall into that category. Yes. And that's that's sort of a, a another hot topic that maybe not as many people are aware of. They might be more aware of the X-37B, the Air Force space plane that can maneuver when it's on orbit. I don't believe we've had any actual, have we had any actual demonstrations of satellite servicing on orbit? Did Swiss clean space have a demonstration? But definitely, definitely not a broader or, or long-term demonstration of it. So I don't know that people are, that the general public is really thinking about it as much yet. 
an active debris removal demonstration, which is related and similar, but I don't think there's been a demonstration of, of you know, refueling or something like that. Actually, no. The Hubble telescope. That is <laughs> the, the classic on-orbit servicing. Yeah. I, you know, it would be interesting to look back at the at the record and see if there were any states parties who issued a statement about that. But it, it was a demonstration that you could send a maneuverable craft to intersect with. with another craft on orbit. Yeah. Yep. I mean, all of our International Space Station operations also involve docking with another space object on orbit. Let's get to the lightning round here. I think some of this we may have already covered in your own story, um, but this is the advice portion. Um, what advice would you give to anybody that is pre-law or pre-graduate school that is interested in space law and policy? Okay, if you're pre-graduate school and you're trying to decide if you wanna to go to law school, if you're not excited about the idea of being a lawyer or about going to law school and you just wanna go because you like space, I would say probably consider a policy option because law school is a bigger commitment financially and in terms of time commitment than a policy master's that might, depending on where you go, help you be able to make those connections and, and leverage into that community. If you are interested in being a lawyer and law school excites you, then you know, definitely look at law school and look at the schools that have existing programs where you can get your JD that enable you to take the bar so you could practice in any field of law, but that you can take courses in space law, learn more about it, specialize and get involved early on. So if you're in the U.S., Mississippi and Nebraska are the two sort of flagship places to do that. Outside the U.S., McGill and Leiden are great options as well. Leiden being in the Netherlands if you're European. So, so there are good options there. Sort of try to be efficient, I guess, about your studies because the number of years that you're studying, you're paying tuition, you're not earning. So you want to do the best you can to maximize the utility on the education that you're getting. Um, maybe this sounds a little bit hypocritical coming from someone with five degrees, but... <laughs> This is a little bit lessons learned too, right? Yeah. As much as I enjoyed my European politics and governance math that I got before I went to law school, it was not necessarily an efficient use of resources. I'm utilizing it now. It's good, you know, I, I'm not sad that I did it, but not an efficient use of resources, particularly in today's economy for the folks who are looking at getting involved in that stuff now. And then let's say that they have decided to go to law school or graduate school. It's a very busy time, a lot of reading, especially in your first year, a lot of work to do while you're in class. What advice would you give to those students who still want to be planning to pursue space on policy once they graduate or want to stay involved while they're in school? Honestly, the most important thing you can do is networking. It's such a small community and the impressions that you create early on are going to make the difference of how quickly and how well you integrate into that community and become employed in that community and succeed in that community. So start going to conferences right away. Start talking to people. If you can publish, publish right away. Even if it's a blog entry on somebody's blog, 
getting your name out there and getting recognized is important. If you can take on responsibilities, volunteering for an organization or on a committee of an organization, if you're a student member, do that to demonstrate, hey, I'm somebody who is reliable and dependable. Because yes, being smart and being knowledgeable, space, law, and or policy, whatever you're trying to do is really important. But it's also important that you identify yourself as somebody who is going to be dependable and reliable and that people will look to you when something needs to get done. Excellent. And then what advice would you give to people who have already graduated and have started working professionally? This is sort of like your own story where you had already started working in a non-space related or non-direct space related field. How would you suggest other people make a similar transition? I was lucky enough that I was in a place in my life where I could move on to do another degree and redirect my career, but not everybody's going to find themselves in that position. And so if you can't kind of drop everything and switch over, there are a couple of options. One is an online degree. So if you're already a lawyer and you want to do an LLM to specialize in air and space law, Mississippi offers the LLM with an online option. So you can do it online. I believe Nebraska does as well. Nathan, you're more versed in that. Yes, they, they do have an online version of the LLM. Okay, so so that's an option if you can't leave your job and you want to do it part-time online from where you are or you know you make the choice you don't want to leave your job. Another option is to just start getting involved. So go to conferences, take a little vacation time, uh, go to the International Astronautical Congress. This year it's in D.C., so if you're American, it's much easier to get to. Get your name out there, listen to some panels, talk to some people, try to find out if this is something you really want to be interested in and continue to pursue as a career option. And if that's true, find areas of overlap with your existing expertise. See if you can publish something, even if it means writing it on the weekends or during your own time. See if you can publish something to get your name out there that brings your expertise to the space realm and, and make that transition. I will say, for practitioners and for folks who are looking at graduate, one of the things that is often highlighted, and I think is absolutely correct, is that yes, learning space law is useful and valuable. However, you need to know something other than just space law in order to be successful, at least in the early stages of your career. So for me, I had an insurance background. I leveraged that. Labor law, contract law, administrative. These are all fields that are necessary to support the continuing development of the space industry and space endeavors. And so if you can say, hey, I know space law, but I also know labor. I know space law, but I'm also really good at contracts. That's going to make you a more desirable candidate than somebody who has done nothing but space law. That's a, that's a really good point. I, I definitely position myself as regulatory. So there are lots of industries that are regulated and need licenses and filings. And so that was going to be my specialty. And I've known people, like you said, contracts. Some people have started directly in export control. Like you said, mm -hmm. that is a big issue for space companies. Absolutely. So that is very good advice. All right, Andrew, well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. No problem. Thank you for inviting me.
Thank you for listening to the Astro Esquire podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website at astroesq.com and check out our Patreon page to subscribe for access to bonus content. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please leave us a review on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The Astro Esquire podcast is hosted and produced by Nathan Johnson. Our theme music was composed by Kevin Bloom. Thank you.